welcome to Rich in Life, a podcast for anyone looking to be entertained while picking up a few tips on life, luxury, and resilience. And now your host, Rich Irani. Welcome to Rich in Life. I'm Rich Irani, your host. And today I have a very special guest for you. Um, I've been trying to get him on the show for a while, and um, he's always been very busy and very shy and not really that willing to talk. But I was able to get him, and I'm going to bring him in now, our guest. <clears throat> Come in. He's a little shy. Let me go get him. Come on. Don't be shy. Come. Okay. Here I am, Rich Arani. I am the special guest that I tried to get. It was really hard to get me, but I did it. I got myself. So... Here's the thing. I have a whole bunch of questions for myself that actually some people have sent to me in the past. Some people have sent it over Instagram or DM me or just ask me in person. And some of them are not. So I'm not going to pretend these are all questions from other people. But I know that Kanye did a interview with himself and I figured if he can do it, I can do it. So let me start here with the first question. What made you start a podcast? That's a great question. And I'll tell you the reason why is I had no interest in hearing myself and talk, listening to myself talk. And I had no interest in even seeing the way I look on the screen, which I know for those of you who listen to the podcast, don't see me. But if you go to my Instagram, you will see the snippets from the podcast. And I think for the one year anniversary, they are all going to go up on YouTube. So yes, it was audio and it was video. And I was not a fan of that. How it all started was I was trying to pitch a television show. And so I called a friend of mine, whose name is Vinny Potestivo. And he was a producer for MTV. And I've been friends with him for a long time. When I called him up, I gave him the idea for a show, which he really did love, and I think is still a great idea. But he told me, Rich, now is not the time. I think you should do a podcast. I told him, no, I don't want to do a podcast. I'm not that familiar with them. He told me, Rich, you're not going to get very far. It's going to be hard to sell the show. And even if you sell it, you're not going to get a lot of money, and they're going to own all the rights to it. I said, but, you know, can't you direct me in the right way? He goes, I'm directing you now. Start a podcast. I told him, I'm not sure. He said, you won't get any money if you sell a show. You'll get hardly anything, and they can cancel you the next season. And if you do a podcast, you can perhaps own the rights to it and call all the shots for it. I said, okay, Vinny, I'm going to get back to you. Two months after that, the pandemic hit, we had coronavirus going on, and I was in quarantine by the beach house in New Jersey with my kids. And uh, I called up Vinny and I said, are you ready? And he said, ready for what? I said, ready for my bullshit because we're going to do this podcast. He says, yeah. I said, yep, I'm up for it if you're up for it. So that's when it started. It actually started during the pandemic. And um, I was not interested in doing it, but I found myself at that point wanting to do it, especially since I, at that point, my shops were closed. Traveling to Europe was, was over with for the moment. Everything was so indefinite and uncertain. I felt like this was one thing that can be done on a regular basis. And I could maybe talk to my customers 
through the podcast. Okay, how do you get your guests? Well, that's another good question. I put an ad on Craigslist under, uh, I put it under kinky or, you know, if you wanna be tortured, you know, call this number. You look like you wear the same clothes all the time. Are you on a tight budget? No, I actually am very consistent. I'm very ritualistic, and that's R-I-T-C-H, ritualistic. I am very ritualistic. I kind of stick to the same colors, the same shapes, and which is, I think, what was part of my success at Chucky's and designing the Richerani collection. I was always very consistent. I like things um, to be a certain way, and they kind of don't change. I mean, for some people, that could be bad. For me, it worked out good. If I can wear the same uniform, which I actually do all the time, I stick to the same things. And, you know, I like navy, black, gray, khaki. I stick to the same things. And when my family uh, is out, people always think, hey, did you guys plan this? Are you all deliberately matching? And we don't. I buy everyone's clothes. Everyone has kind of the same colors and we're all monochromatic. So it doesn't really matter what you put on. Eventually, you know, we're, we all look very similar. So there's your answer to that. Hmm. Okay, here's, a, here's an interesting one. I was surprised you were a guest on Melissa Rivers' group text on happiness. How do you find happiness? Well, I'm going to tell you, I was surprised that I was a guest on Melissa Rivers' group text on happiness because I don't come across as the happiest person. I'm very, very easily annoyed. I have constant anxiety, and I'm always waiting for the other shoe to drop which is a very terrible way to live, but that kind of does sum me up. So yeah, I was not really known to be such a happy person. That being said, as I've gotten older, I've realized that being happy is a choice. It really is a choice. You can dwell on the things that you know you were given in life that you weren't happy with, whether it was you know sick parents that died early, whether it was being gay, whether it's being overweight for some people, whether it's struggling to make a business for other people. There's so many things to be unhappy about or to complain about. And by all means, I'm not saying don't complain, go nuts, get it off your chest. But at the end of the day, happiness is a choice. And I chose to be happy. And it came once I did have my kids as I, I decided that not only did I want to be happy, but I also have to live because there was a time when my mom was sick for a very long time that I was depressed. You know, I used to think, you know, if I just go in my sleep, that would be the easiest. And I remember after my kids were born, going to my uh, internist, my doctor who knew me for a very long time on the Upper East Side, and he doesn't take insurance. You know, of course, with all the money I spend on insurance, of course, I go to doctors that don't even take it. And when I told him I had my kids, he was very happy for me. And I told him, doctor, now I have to live. I had them later in life. I, I got to make sure I live. My father died young. My grandfather died young. Everyone around me has died so young. I got to really, I, I got to, <laughs> I got to live. And he told me the few things that he wanted me to do, which I actually did. We'll, we'll get back to that another time. That's when the happiness started. When I had my kids, I realized that, you know what? I don't want to be miserable about everything. I don't want to dwell on the past and don't want to dwell on the things that just is. There are things that just are. You can't fight what is and it's a choice. And I decided to be happy. And that's how I find my happiness is by talking to myself and by 
re-listening, believe it or not, to some of my guests that were on Rich in Life. For instance, Dr. Daryl Appleton was a great guest and she really helped me so much with anxiety. Christy Whitman, who was a best, she is a um, New York Times bestselling author. One of her books, which was great, I read most of it, was Quantum Success. She was really helpful. If you missed that episode, you should listen to Christy Whitman. And I also have Tina Marie Clark, who I had a really long conversation with on the podcast. She's an ex-model. She went from rags to riches, literally. She, you know, she came from a very humble upbringing. She married a very wealthy guy and she was a very angry young girl and became a very happy adult. So, you know, really, literally and figuratively, um, Tina Marie Clark went from rags to riches and came out with a method called the Shift Stir Method. And, you know, that book I also got on Amazon and it really does help. And things that we even spoke about were very helpful to me. And I always have that in my mind when I find myself flying out of control or getting crazy about silly things and even things that are not so silly. Um, the other thing, okay, why are your clothes so small? <laughs> That's a good one. Um, well, because I'm still growing. I have that Benjamin button, but in reverse, instead of aging, I just keep getting taller and taller. It's very hard being a tall guy. People get very intimidated by me. And also I love Tom Brown clothes and that's how it all started. Uh, it started literally maybe 15 years ago. I started wearing that look. People were like the flood is over when they'd see me in my short pants. Before I knew it, everybody was doing the same thing. Now I've got Brad, I've got my brothers, I've got my nephews all looking the same way. So I love it because when we walk in crowds, all of us together, we kind of look like we're in an army. So I think that's kind of cool. I want to get back to uh, my doctor that I went to and the one that I said that I have to live. It was very interesting because, you know, he told me all the things that I need to do based on what runs in the family. So he told me the regular things that I'm sure everybody knows. One of the things I never heard of, which I'm sure a lot of you have, but in case you haven't, it was a calcium score. I said, what is a calcium score? And he explained to me, and this was five or six years ago, he told me that, you know, you go for, it's kind of like an MRI, but a very light one, they put something over you and they can see if you have calcification in your arteries. And since my father, his brothers, my mother's father all died very young of heart attacks, he wanted me to take a calcium score. And I said, what good is that gonna do? Why do I need to know if I'm gonna die of a heart attack? And he explained to me that there are remedies we can do to prevent you from having a heart attack if you have calcification in your arteries. I said, okay. I took his prescription because you need a prescription in order to go for a calcium score. I put the prescription in the blotter in my desk and I forgot all about it. I figured, you know, I'm fine. I don't eat red meat. I don't eat cheese. I run like a hamster on a wheel and I work out. I'm sure that I have no calcification. Fast forward about two years later, a very good friend of mine who is known to be a trainer and an excellent trainer had a massive heart attack. He had a massive heart attack at a Chelsea gym. It was on a Sunday. And I remember getting the phone call because I had just come back uh, from brunch with my kids. I had a few drinks and I just plopped and lay down on the couch. I get a cell phone. Um, I get a call on my cell phone and I look, it's a friend of mine, Dan. I pick up, I go, hey, Dan, what's up? He's like, did you know that your friend went to the hospital? He, I was at the gym with him and he you know, something happened and the ambulance came. 
And I said, you know, it was probably, I think it's vertigo because I've spoken to my friend one or two times before that about him feeling dizzy. And I said, you know what? It's probably vertigo, but go to a doctor, go to a doctor. He said, Rich, it couldn't have been vertigo. They were using a defibrillator on him. So that really sobered me up very quickly. I jumped off the couch, ran to the hospital, and he was in an induced coma. And turns out he had a massive heart attack. So this is a world-renowned trainer that had a massive heart attack. And it was very scary. Nobody saw it coming. You know, he's a healthy guy. I'm a healthy guy. In any case, what did I do? That week, I ran back scrambling to look for that prescription to go for a calcium score. I finally find the prescription. It took me a couple of days. And when I did find it, I called, I made an appointment, went for the calcium score. I figured I'm sure everything is fine, but you know, I'm going to do it anyway. So, you know, that's what we have to do as adults, especially when we have kids, we don't do it for ourselves all the time. We have to do it for the people that we love around us. That's what I wish my father maybe would have done. You know, I know it's not his fault, but Maybe had he taken better care of himself and maybe didn't smoke cigars. I don't know if he back then if they knew how dangerous it was to smoke. But they also do say that calcification and clogged arteries, they don't happen right before the heart attack. They don't happen five years before the heart attack. They start from youth, which is why my mom always, after my dad had the heart attack, she always kind of cooked with um, either little to no fat. She switched everyone to, you know, skim milk and she didn't make potted meats. In any case, this is getting boring, that end of it. I go for my calcium score and now I'm waiting for the results and I'm nervous, but I'm thinking, I'm sure I'm fine. Everything is good. I get a call from my doctor and he says, you have calcification. So now I'm talking to my doctor who I have a lot of respect for and I start flying off the handle. I start screaming, how the F could I have calcification? I don't eat meat. I don't eat cheese. I exercise. I run five to eight miles four times a week. I work out like a fanatic. I just go off on him and I hear nothing on the other end of the phone. I go, hello? Hello? I actually thought he hung up on me and I wouldn't blame him. He says, I'm here, which goes to show you how great this doctor was. He goes, I'm here. He goes, I'm just letting you talk. I said, I'm so sorry, doctor, but I'm so angry. I mean, if I have calcification with everything I do, it's all downhill from here. What am I going to do? And then he proceeds to explain that it's fine because he prescribes a Crestor, he, a baby aspirin. He gives you a statin and a baby aspirin. And he says, Rich, this is preventative. Don't think just because you have calcification that you're doomed to have a heart attack because you're not. And he explained to me that he is a doctor and most of his patients are between the ages of 40 he told me, and I think 90, and he said, do you know how many times I'm in the cardiac unit? Hardly ever. And the reason why is because he tells all his patients to go for a calcium score. This way you can determine if you need to be on a statin and a baby aspirin. So I was not happy. I thanked him. I hung up and I was very, very upset. So like a dummy, I go and fill the prescription immediately for my Crestor. So I'm elaborating on this story to show you how all my issues escalate. So now let me just tell you as a sidebar, during this whole time, I'm scrambling to get 
better health, not health, better life insurance for my family in case anything happens to me. You know, I have my kids, you know, at this point, I think they're like two years old at this point, maybe two and a half. And although I had life insurance, you know, for my mom, when she was sick, that's when I took out life insurance for her in case anything happened to me because I traveled a lot. I needed to take, I needed to get a lot more life insurance. So I was in the midst here of getting life insurance for my family and without even calling the broker that was helping me get life insurance, because here I am older with a family history of everything. I mean, the fact that I didn't just drop dead right then and there is surprising because I've outlived, I think, most of the men in my family. Um, so I get a call from my broker my, my insurance broker saying, did you fill a prescription for Crestor? I said, yes, my doctor told me. And he told me, he yelled at me. He goes, why didn't you talk to me first? You should have told me now this changes everything. Now they're asking questions. Now they, you know, they're putting a halt on your life insurance and we have to now do something else. We have to take another route. I was so angry at myself because I didn't think ahead and all I had to do was wait a week or two. I mean, I waited years anyway before I took this calcium score. All I should have done was waited a couple of weeks, spoke to my insurance broker, Robbie, who I love, and just waited a few weeks before I filled it, gotten my life insurance and then filled it. So now everything became more difficult to get life insurance. So I made life a lot harder for myself on that aspect. But getting back to um, the calcium score and the statin, I recommend for anybody listening, it doesn't matter how old you are or how young you are. It uh, doesn't hurt if the insurance company doesn't pay for it, it's $200. And I was curious why my doctors of the past never mentioned it to me. And I didn't always go to this particular doctor because he didn't take insurance. So the other doctors that I went to that took insurance had never mentioned the calcium score. It was only this particular doctor. So in any case, check it out. Let's go to the next question here. Do you have any good New York City stories to share? Hmm. I have so many New York City stories to share. I've been a fixture here and I went out a lot. I went out a lot and I still go out, but boy, do I have a lot. Let me think of a good story that doesn't involve name dropping because I hate name dropping. I hate bringing up celebrities. Um, and those were some of the funnest ones. I'm going to tell you a story that is fun. And this was a pretty recent story. It was about three years ago. I was going with Brad and a friend of mine, a girlfriend, and we were going to a restaurant on the Upper East Side that I went to when we would stay in the neighborhood. It was called Bill's, Bill's Townhouse. And it's at right across the street from the Monkey Bar on 54th Street. It had a very fun and swanky crowd. And, you know, I always liked to go there. It was dark and sexy. And I just liked that place. So we went to have dinner there. We said, we'll meet you at the bar. I told my girlfriend, you know, meet us there. So anyway, me and Brad, we get to the bar. We're there early. We're having a drink. I see an empty stool next to me and a guy in the stool right after. And I say, you know, is this taken? He says, it's taken. I'm waiting for somebody. And he says, oh, but if you want, you can come, you can sit on my lap. You know, he made a joke. It was apparent that, you know, he was a straight guy, young, good looking, straight guy. He was waiting for a girl. Anyway, I turned away from him and I'm thinking, okay, we get it. We get it. You're okay with gay people, whatever. We order our drinks. And, you know, after one drink, the guy's still waiting for his date to come and she doesn't come. And he starts making conversation with us. As time goes by, we're talking about a lot of different things and he starts buying us drinks. 
And um, I keep telling him, don't, don't buy us drinks. You know, we're fine. Let us buy you a drink. And he really wanted to buy us drinks. And he kept saying another round, another round. It turns out that this guy worked because he was in the military. He worked for a nonprofit organization that took care of families who have lost people in the military. And the reason why he did that was because one of his friends had died in Benghazi. And as we were talking, he just, you know, looks down to his phone and I had no idea what he was doing. And at the time I thought that was weird because we had such eye contact and such an intense conversation. Turns out he was looking for the photo of him and his friend and he holds it right up to my face and says, that was him. That was one of the guys that got blown up in Benghazi. He was a very good friend of his. And now what he does is works to get money to take care of the families. I thought that was pretty incredible. I thought he was a great guy. Anyway, we decided to go upstairs. My, my girlfriend came and of course she thought this guy was really cute. And um, I said, he's waiting for a date. She goes, okay, he's dead to me. We go upstairs to have a uh, dinner. And I told him because he was so nice, he bought us all these drinks. I told him, listen, when you're done, if this is a bus this date, please come upstairs and have dinner with us. We all go upstairs and of course I'm thinking, you know, he's going to be fine and we're not going to see him. Five minutes later, he meanders upstairs and I call him over. I tell him to come sit with us. And of course he does. We all have dinner. We're having a great time. And he invites us back to his um, apartment to have more drinks as if I can continue drinking. I'm already half in the bag and not sure how much more I can drink, but my friend thought he was cute. His date was a bust. And the reason why his date was a bust he told us that the date that he was waiting for, she came very late and brought her sister who was at the end of the bar kind of chaperoning. So, you know, that did sound pretty weird. So he ditched her, came upstairs. So I turned to Brad and I said, what do you think? You know, do you think we should go back to his apartment? And I turned to my girlfriend and she shrugged her shoulders. She says, I'll go. We all went back to his apartment. It was just a few blocks away. He lived somewhere right by, right off Park Avenue. Um, yeah, because Bills is between uh, Madison and Park and he lived just a few blocks away. We, we took the car, since we had the car with us, we took the car to his apartment. And in the car, I felt something graze my leg and it turned out to be his hand. And I got startled for a second. He was sitting in the front seat with me and Brad was in the back seat with our girlfriend, <clears throat> whose name I'm not gonna tell you. And um, he says he just didn't understand that why I'm wearing shorts. So he wanted to touch it. And I said, ah, sometimes I wear shorts in the winter. That's kind of, you know, that's sometimes something I do. It's a look. Anyway, that's over with. We're at his apartment. We're going up the doorway through the elevators. And uh, we enter his apartment. Typical straight guy apartment. You know, uh, he's got all of his sports stuff hanging on the walls, his bicycle dead in the center of the apartment. And then he goes into his bedroom to change and comes back out in more comfortable clothes. And we're sitting there and we're talking. And suddenly my girlfriend, this is maybe 20 minutes into it. We're laughing, we're talking about business, about what he does exactly and how he gets money for these families. And we're just having fun. And there's a silence for a few minutes and my girlfriend gets up and starts running out of the apartment. And I jump up and I said, what happened? I'm already in the hallway at this point. She ran out of the apartment 
screaming. And I ran after her and said, what happened? She goes, he just kicked me out. I go, what do you mean he kicked you out? He, he wouldn't kick you out. He likes you. She said, no, he kicked me out. He said, now this is boys time. I said, boys time. I don't know what that means, boys time. Anyway, I did find out what that means. What that actually meant was that he wanted her to leave so he could have a three-way with me and Brad. So I thought that was funny. I ran back in. I was in the hallway. So I ran back in. I looked at him. I, I opened up my hands like, well, what's going on? And he says, come on, come on, come back in, come back in. He was really still trying to get me back in the apartment. I said, listen, my friend's really hurt. She feels bad. I'm going after her. Brad, let's go. I got Brad off the couch. He didn't know what was flying. Brad didn't know what was flying. I got him in the hallway. We went into the uh, elevator and we left. My girlfriend was really upset. I was flattered, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, she was really upset. I was shocked. I was very shocked. Although that's after that happened, the graze on the leg now made sense to me in the car. In any case, when I get home, I realize I left my Tom Ford prescription glasses <laughs> at his apartment. There were $500 prescription glasses that I had just got. So I figured I'd call him the next day to see if he has them. Maybe he'll send them back. So I did. I called him. He says he didn't have them, whatever. So that's a good New York City story. That all happened within just a couple of hours in New York City. So much can happen. Okay. Let's see. What was the best and worst part of the fashion retail world? Hmm. Okay. Some of the best parts about the fashion retail world turned out to be some of the worst parts. For instance, traveling to Europe started out to be amazing. It was incredible. Traveling, going to the fashion shows. It was so exciting. It was so new. And then as time went on, that actually turned out to be the worst part about it. It became very, I don't know, daunting. It just felt nothing was changing. Fashion wasn't changing fast enough. Prices were just getting higher and all these retail things. Business was, you know, on a little bit of a down slope because the prices were so high. So that would say it started out as the best and, and turned out to be one of the worst things um, was the traveling part. And, and the fashion shows. I mean, I loved going to the fashion shows. When we would go to the fashion shows in the very beginning, it was the dream team. And I say dream team because it was Naomi Campbell, Cindy Crawford, Christy Turlington, Linda Evangelist, Kate Moss. These were the regulars at every fashion show, whether it was Marc Jacobs, who had the best shows. Marc Jacobs shows, fashion shows were like parties. And Isaac Mizrahi shows were also like parties. And Todd Oldham was great parties as well. Those were some of the great fashion shows. The, the Pradas, the Mew Mews, and some of the other ones were a little bit more straightforward, but the ones that I mentioned and Donna Karen, they were great. And the reason why those shows were also so much fun at the time was because they weren't at Bryan Park at the tents. They were in venues. So sometimes they would be, uh, Donna Karen once had it in her showroom, which was not very big. So they were literally marching right down in front of you. You know, you can literally grab Cindy Crawford's leg or, I mean, it was just great. The, the energy and the excitement was so great because these venues were smaller. They were more intimate and they were great. And then later what happened was they decided to make them all in the tents at Bryan Park and I stopped going. And that was the end of that. Another great part was finding great designers. Finding great designers that people didn't have was, I think, one of, it was euphoric. It was like, this is so great. We found a great designer. But the worst part was then suddenly that designer making it big and deciding they don't want to sell to you anymore. So, you know, I can give you examples of that. Like 
for instance, Sergio Rossi, and I know what you're all thinking, ah, we all knew Sergio Rossi, but you didn't really all know Sergio Rossi. About 28 years ago, they were mainly in Italy. And the only reason how I really found them is that Dolce & Gabbana shoes, which we carried, were being made in the Sergio Rossi factory. So we brought them in. And then after we brought them in, then Bergdorf's brought them in and Jeffrey brought them in. And what happened was, is a couple of seasons later, we were doing so well with the shoes that we actually went to Italy to the showroom. We made an appointment. We went there. And when we got to the appointment, they said, we can't sell to you anymore. Our distribution is too full. So yeah, so these were moments, I'm not going to get into how annoying that was. I mean, make giving us an appointment just to tell us that they can't sell to us in a three minute conversation. I mean, buy us lunch, buy us a drink and tell us how sorry you are. Fake a couple of tears for me and I'll walk out feeling a little satisfied, but it was so cut and dry. We can't sell to you. Our distribution is too full. Meanwhile, we were one of the first people that brought the collection in. Anyway, that's just one example, but there were so many of them. I mean, even Miu Miu. When we bought Miu Miu, they did not even have a showroom. They didn't have their own showroom anywhere. They were showing the Miu Miu collection at a hotel in Germany. And we were the only ones in that room buying Miu Miu. I remember grabbing Chucky and saying, let's go up. She has another collection. It's called Miu Miu. You know, he made fun of the name, which of course, how could you not? Customers couldn't pronounce it for, I don't know, for years. They kept saying Moo Moo. Turns out, though, we buy the collection. It does great. They don't have their own store or a showroom in New York City. So who is getting all the editorial in New York Magazine and in all these fashion magazines from Miu Miu? It was Chucky's. We were in every magazine for about two years because Miu Miu was exclusively at Chucky's and Jeffrey's, Jeffrey Kalinsky, who I knew very well. We were the only two that bought Miu Miu from the get-go. He was the buyer at the time of Barney's and Chelsea. There was no Jeffries at the time. Um, so yeah, so I gave you some of the best and the worst. Oh, so getting back to Miu Miu. So we bring in the shoes. I see Jeffrey one day when I was at Barney's and we start laughing at how well they're doing, but nobody even knows that it's Prada's other collection. People are calling it Moo Moo and that we have to educate every customer that, oh, this is part of Prada's other collection. Her nickname is Miu Miu and that's how this all started. In any case, the traction, it, it, it really takes off. Her shoes become huge. We wind up carrying Prada Mainline, the accessories, the shoes, Prada Sport, and then they completely cut us off. Just like that, cut us off. Like we were a paid prostitute. They literally just said, we can't sell to you anymore. See you around. And that's how that ended. We did convince them to give us one more season to get our ducks in order because they could essentially put us out of business. They can put us out of business by taking away so many collections out of a store at one time. We said, give us one season. And in that season, we did you know, make some changes. I started designing a little and that's how the designing started. So there you have that. Okay, any famous people shop at Chucky's? Yes, a ton. Um, for starters, uh, the ones that come to my head, we had a ton, but I'm gonna give you the ones that come to my head for any reason, okay, Renee Zellweger. She was a customer in the store. She shopped a few times in the store. And what I loved about Renee is she really had that Southern hospitality charm. I helped her with a few things she was going to. I think the very first time was something for an Oscars. Now you have to remember, this was way before people were getting shoes for free. 
This was way before that. So because we stopped getting celebrities once people started getting shoes for free. And there's a reason why people were getting a shoe, shoes for free. And the reason I'll get to after we get to the celebrities. So remind me if I forget. Renee Zellweger, lovely. She was a lovely customer. She, she hand wrote a personalized thank you card to me two times when she shopped in the store, thanking me for helping her, which was lovely. Madonna came in and I thought um, she was interesting because she came in really incognito. She came in an oversized Adidas sweats. She came in completely alone, which was very different from when Lauren Hill, Puff Daddy and all these other um, artists came in. They used to come in with an entourage and Jennifer Lopez, they'd always come in with an entourage. Madonna came in with the cap pulled over her head, oversized clothes. She bought two pairs of shoes and she left. So that was, that was interesting. Paula Abdul. Okay. Lovely, lovely girl. She tried on half the store. She had a really small foot. I remember she tried on almost everything. And at the end, she just walked up and said, well, thank you. I will think about them. And I just thought that was really funny because she was successful at the time she was shopping at Chucky's. And um, I just thought that was funny, but she really was sweet. Britney Spears. Okay. What you see when you watch her perform, she's adorable and a mess. She's so sweet and so nice, but she really is a mess. The girl's a mess. She wound up taking two of the same foot. I don't remember if it was right or left, but I do remember putting the other shoe on the side of the register, waiting for somebody from her team to call us up and say, well, she has two of the same foot. Could we make an exchange? Because we sold her the shoes, but now we're out another pair of shoes because we have either two left feet or two right feet in a box. In any case, she never, nobody from her team ever called, which was even funnier to me and shows what a mess she was. Uh, Cindy Crawford, I've always loved Cindy Crawford, loved seeing her at the shows when she'd walk into the store. She was just lovely. She's a lovely girl. I found it interesting that Cindy Crawford, Brooke Shields, Iman, the taller these women were, the higher the heels they wanted. We weren't always able to help them because they all had 10s, sometimes 10 and a halves or even 11s, although they'd never admit to it. You know, Brooke Shields did shop at Chucky's a lot. She lived just a few blocks away. And uh, I realized as time went on that she's really not a 10, 10 and a half, she's an 11. And I started buying bigger sizes and we did learn. And that's how we, you know, wound up getting bigger sizes by learning. Unfortunately, by then everybody was getting shoes for free and nobody was shopping in stores any longer. And my theory for free shoes and free Free shoes in particular, I'll speak about, was the Christian Louboutin thing. What, you know, and I've said it before, and I don't know if anybody has ever heard me say it again, but I'm going to. When the Kardashians started their show, uh, Christian Louboutin had these identifiable shoes, as you all know, with a red sole. He was a brilliant, brilliant marketer. And what he did was he gave free shoes to a gaggle of gorgeous girls on a reality show where they would open up the boxes on camera and scream, put the shoes on, and everybody knew that they were Christian Louboutin. And he also did that with some reality shows, which was brilliant, but once they started getting shoes for free, nobody wanted to pay for shoes anymore, nobody. The housewives, actresses, people that suddenly would come in and buy shoes, now we're having other people call up the store to say they would like a pair of shoes. They'd like a pair of uh, Giuseppe's they saw in the window, or they would like a pair of Chloe shoes. And I would always say, I'd cup the phone and say, I don't know what that means. They want 
Do they want to pay for them? Do they want them for free? I, I didn't even know what that meant. I was so clueless until I figured out, they told me, well, they want them for free. In any case, that was the end of celebrities coming into the store, which might have turned out to be a blessing. Okay, what made you start designing shoes and what took so long? Let's see. I started designing shoes, not because the universe needed another shoe designer, since we have billions of them. The world didn't need one. But my problem was in Chucky's is being in the most prominent neighborhood in New York City distribution was always being, how do I say it? It was always being uh, given and taken away. It was always on the fence. We'd get a collection like Valentino. We'd nurse that collection through its big, ugly bows, and then suddenly get the rock studs, sell them. We'd buy them great, sell them, and then suddenly lose distribution. So anytime distribution for these designers got too full in Manhattan, the first person they wanted to cut out was the independent small store, which made no sense to us because we weren't the ones that gave points for shopping at the store and gave them discounts and friends and family discounts and all kinds of other discounts. Um, and this is what department stores did. Plus department stores also sold these shoes online. So their shoes were being so much more exposed and were able to get at discounts due to these department stores. Yet, who were these designers singling out to cut? It was stores like Chucky's, who not only had the shoes in the store and nursed them, we taught customers, this was on the runway, this was uh, great for this collection. You know, we knew, we had history. We weren't, you know, we were a bunch of young people in the store that knew the history behind the collection but yet we were the ones that cut out. So that was the reason. When that happened is when I started designing shoes, not that I thought I would ever become as successful as the shoes that they took away from us, but I did wanna show a collection that they couldn't find in Barney's and Bergdorf's and Bloomingdale's at Saks. And that was the reason why. And it turned out to be a good thing because people were coming in just to see the Richarani collection. And lucky enough, they actually started to do very well and when they started to do well is when we hired a PR team. And that's when we had to start giving them away to celebrities, which is eventually what we did is give them away to celebrities. And the difficult part was when they start selling so well, and then you get um, a request that, you know, Beyonce wants the shoes. How do you say no? It's either giving it to her for free or selling it to a customer. You know, I'd rather sell it to a customer or even give it away for free to somebody who actually doesn't have money. But unfortunately, this is the way the world works if you wanna be in the fashion business. So I gave a lot of shoes away and we had a lot of people wear the shoes and we had more requests that I couldn't fill from celebrities. Okay, what do we got here? In your podcast, you make many references to the grass is not always greener, one size does not fit all, and you have to put your best foot forward. What the hell are you talking about? Okay, so one size doesn't fit all in any scenario. The advice that I've given to people is not the same. If I say to people, if I say to girlfriends, don't call guys, you should never call him, let him call you, might not apply for every girl. Things that I say don't apply to everybody. It depends on the person. So one size does not fit all. You can't take a blanket statement and expect that to mean it goes for everyone. 
You have to hear the situation and you have to kind of know who you're talking to. Because if you're talking to somebody that you know might be a little bit obsessive, you don't want to tell this person, whether it's a boy or a girl, yeah, uh, call her or text her. Because, you know, they might constantly text, they might be a turnoff. So, you know, you have to know who you're talking to, who your audience is before you give certain kinds of advice. So that's when I say one size doesn't fit all. And the grass is not always greener. You know, that was an interesting lesson I learned. And I remember the time I learned it. I learned it when I was in the shop one day, many, many years ago. And I was very good friends with a beautiful customer who I was very close to. She used to come to the store very often and she used to only like me to okay whatever she would buy. So it didn't matter who waited on her. When it was time to pay, I had to come out from the office and hear everything that she was buying and what she was wearing and where she was wearing them to. We really became close. I loved um, the fact that she was so in love with her family, her husband, her children, and she seemed to have really been very happy. And she, I knew her for years. One day she came into the store and as she was paying, I said, how's everything? How's your husband? How are the kids? She said, oh, the kids are great, but you know, me and my husband, we're, you know, we're separating. I said, I'm so surprised. You guys seem so happy. And she told me three very famous words. We grew apart. That was very weird to me because, you know, she seemed so in love with him. Usually I always say that's code for I'm fucking somebody else. But I didn't really think that with her, but it turns out I was correct. Um, so she told me they grew apart. I was very surprised. She walked out of the store after a very long conversation. And I turned to the people that I was working with and I said, but she has children. She has, I think she had three children or four children. She had a lot of children. And I remember thinking, how do you just grow apart? And who cares if you grow apart when you have kids? Grow apart, go to counseling, go to counseling. That's what you have to do. You don't matter anymore. Anyway, I remember having these views and I was so much younger than I am today. Obviously I didn't have kids back then. And my views were so, I guess, so much smarter than hers, or at least in my head, I thought they were smarter. It turns out they were because months later, I don't, could have been a year later, she came into the shop again and she was buying things and she told me that she was dating a guy. And I said, okay, great. And how's it going? She goes, oh, I love him. He's so great. I didn't ask her if this is the same guy she was dating probably while she was married, but I had a feeling it was based on a few comments she said. In any case, she told me things were great. She left. She came back a couple of weeks later. She came to, I think, to exchange the shoe in a different size or something. I don't remember. The point was, as I said, so the, how's the new boyfriend? You're having fun. You're going all over the city. Because her complaint was that her husband turned into a couch potato and didn't like to go out as much as he used to go out when they were, you know, when the kids were young or when they were dating or when they first got married. This new guy loved to go out. He loved to go out. They would have so much fun. They'd go out almost every night and drink. I don't know how she has children, but that's what she said she did. In any case, when she comes back to return the shoes, the very guy she loved that was going out every, they were going out every night, suddenly she tells me she is not so happy with him. You know, he turned out to be worse than her husband. Explain that. I actually told her, explain that. She said, well, he's really mean. He was so great when we were, you know, going out in the beginning, but now he's, you know, doesn't like to go out. He's acts actually very mean. My husband was never that mean. 
I told her you should try to get back with your ex. And she told me, I've been trying. He wants nothing to do with me. That was a wake-up call for me. That was a wake-up call for me. Although I was never in a situation like that, I was always the type to always think everything was better on the other side. Everybody always had it better because, you know, I came out late in life. I never had a uh, relationship until later. Everyone seemed to have always been doing better than me. That's what it seemed like. I didn't realize that the universe had plans for me that were the right way. I mean, whatever the universe had, it had to take its course. And it happened organically. I didn't push it. And I guess it happened the way it was supposed to happen. And listen, when that happens, are we all blissfully happy? No, nobody's blissfully happy. And if you're blissfully happy, like this customer with the guy she was dating for, I don't know how long, it doesn't last. So I was one of those people. And I took the phrase, the grass is not always greener from that one particular customer from that one woman who I was close to, who told me everything about her kids, her husband, how much she loved them, to suddenly leave him to just date somebody for, I don't know, a couple of months. That was a shocking revelation. So the grass is not always greener. Remember that. I remember that. When I think everyone has it better and let's say their businesses are doing better, their families are doing better, they don't have any sick relatives or parents and they're not nursing anyone, you have to remember the grass is not always greener. I went to therapy with Brad three times in our relationship. We weren't even married, but we decided when we were having a difficult time to go into a uh, therapy and we did and it worked. And now we have two kids, twins, and um, who would have thought it would have been so easy to just say goodbye and move on as I see so many other people do, so many people mainly gay people, but straight people too. They just move on to the next one, to the next one when things stop working out. Granted, me and Brad were already together six and a half years before things really went bad and we were fighting a lot. And that's when we would decide to go to couples counseling and it really got us through it. The two other times after that were a lot less of the couples counseling. So yeah, that's when I say the grass is not always greener. The grass is greener where you water it that's where the grass is going to be greener. And you have to put your best foot forward. This is probably one of my favorite ones because I see this every day, examples of putting your best foot forward. And the examples I see is I find people don't always put their best foot forward. And then I see people that do. What that means is not putting the foot you like better or you think is smaller forward, obviously, like you know, using your better profile. But what it really means is Put your best foot forward in every aspect of your life. Obviously, you know, we like to all look good. And I try, you know, when I go to a restaurant, even if I go to brunch, I learned at a certain age, I wear a collared shirt, I'll wear, you know, shoes or boots or sneakers. You know, nobody wants to see people's feet. You know, you could be the nicest guy in the world, but at a certain age, listen, when you're 20, 25, you can get away with a lot. Once you're older, and even then nobody wants to see your feet at brunch. But, you know, when I, it started off, best foot forward started off with, you know, looking a certain way. And then for me, morphed into everything. Put your best foot forward in life, which means treat everybody as if they are somebody special to you. Just treat them that way. If you treat everybody like they are special, because everybody is in their own way, you'll be a happier person. You know how many people I've come across in New York City over the last 20 years 
that I had no idea who they were. And so many of them told me, oh, I know exactly who you were. And so many of them told me, oh, you were so nice to me at Chuck E's, or I saw you in the grocery store and you were very nice to me. You let me go ahead of you. There were so many different things. There was even one woman who lived across the street from me on 61st Street. I met her somewhere and I was being very nice to her. She was trying to sell me something. I was at the gym and she had a little pop-up shop and she was trying to sell I don't know, nonsense jewelry. And she was trying to sell it to me. And I was trying to be really kind because people were walking right past her and ignoring her, which is actually what I was dying to do, but I didn't do it. I was polite. I smiled. I said, you know, thank you. It's, I'm not that kind of a person. I don't like to wear that jewelry. And she says, you know, I know you, you live across the street from me. I was taken aback. I felt a little bit violated. Like, what does she know? What did she see? She says, you live across the street. I see in the window. Um, I see you sometimes. Anyway, I, that's all she said. She told me, I forgot what she told me. She saw, she, oh, I, she, saw, she sees me when I have breakfast in the morning. I don't know. She said something that was so creepy. I, I smiled. I said, well, nice to formally meet you. And I ran out of there and started closing my shades after that. Um, so when I say you have to put your best foot forward, I've told this to many of my nieces. Put your best foot forward in every way. Try to look your best. You know, if you're in the mood to be unhappy and miserable one day and run out in pajamas with no makeup and looking terrible, don't. Try to fight it. Try to put your best foot forward. Try to be the nicest you could be. Try to be the most reasonable as you could be. Try to be the most open-minded as you could be when you're talking to people. Try to be generous when you can. If you can, offer to pay for somebody's coffee or tea. Putting your best foot forward is a very important motto for me. And I'm going to give you an example of somebody that doesn't put your best foot forward because I like the stories that pertain to not putting your best foot forward. Here's a great example. In Equinox at the gym, I'm there all the time. Uh, this time I was running on the treadmill for uh, about 40 minutes. I happened to have been next to a young, very tall, beautiful girl. She might've been a model. I don't know. Anyway, when I got on the machine, she was just two machines away from me turns out she started talking on the phone. And I kept turning to her thinking the phone phone call had to end. You know, she was talking on the phone loud, like a regular conversation. Um, I tried to shove my earplugs in even uh, tighter and I made the music as loud as I can get it. And I still kept hearing her. And every time she would stop talking, I'd feel like, okay. And I would run. And then all of a sudden she'd start talking again and it would scare me. It would jolt my body. I kept looking at her and I didn't know what to say or if I should say anything because I don't want to be that guy. I just don't want to be that guy that's going to tell her to get off the phone. I'm going to have to see her every day. I stayed quiet. I was on the treadmill for about 40 minutes, my usual. I got off the treadmill. I She was still on the phone. She was going very slow on an elliptical. She didn't even have to catch her breath. She was still on there and she just talking on the phone very casually. I walked away from her and here is where it gets interesting. I see her now all the time because I noticed exactly who she was. I would see her all the time at the gym. We had the same schedule all the time. And here is the conclusion I came to. She was a rude and entitled Upper East Side woman. That was my conclusion of her. Couldn't stand the sight of her. She could have been the nicest person. 
She could have been taking care of autistic children. She could be giving 80% of her money to charity. I mean, I doubt all of this, but she could have been. She could have been taking care of a sick grandmother. She could have been taking care of homeless people. It didn't matter. In my mind, she was the rude and entitled Upper East Sider who I couldn't be next to in any way. Any place I saw her, I made sure to be at least 20 feet away. And this was before coronavirus. I had to be 20 feet away, not even six feet away, but 20. That's how toxic I felt she was. And, you know, she would be on the phone sometimes, and sometimes she wasn't on the phone, but it didn't matter. And I would see her on the streets of Lexington Avenue, Park Avenue, Third Avenue. And every time I would see her, I would always think the same thing. That's the rude, entitled woman. So there's a great example of you have to put your best foot forward. Listen, I'll get a phone call when I'm at the gym sometimes, and it says no cell phone use. If nobody is around me and I look around, I'll open my phone if I get the same call twice, because that means it's important. And I say, I'll call you back. I'm at the gym and I hang up. That's all I'll do. I'll whisper it and I'll hang up. So that's a great example of how to put your best foot forward is try to take people's consideration. Try to be considerate of other people around you. Be considerate. You're not the only person. You're not the only person, obviously, in the world. You're not the only person in the room. You're not the only person that matters. And that's what I try to always tell myself because I don't wanna be bothered with other people. But I tell myself, I'm not the only person that matters. These nameless and faceless people that clean the gym the minute you get off of the machine, the busboys that come clean up the dirty plates. You know, I always have to remember to turn around, make some eye contact and say, thank you. To me, that's my version of putting your best foot forward. What do we have next? What are you looking for in 2021? Well, for me, I will tell you, I think spending more quality time with my family is what I'm looking forward to in 2021. <laughs> you know, I'm kidding. I hope you know I'm kidding. Yes, no, that's not it. Um, well, the first thing I'm looking forward to is eating lunch because right now it feels like a thousand o'clock and I ran four miles and haven't eaten one thing today. So I hope eating lunch is in the forecast for me, but to be um, more specific, um, longer school hours for the kids because, you know, somebody sneezes in school, they close it and they run out like it's on fire or the buses stop picking up for two weeks because, you know, the bus driver's cousins, uncles, grandmother's son's sister was tested positive. So now there's no buses for two weeks. So I'm looking forward to all of that, getting rid of the masks and going out to my favorite places for dinner. That's what I miss. I miss my go-tos, my go-tos all around the city. I've been hosting at my house and it's been fun, but I can't wait to go out. The next thing I'm looking forward to in 2021 is more great guests for Rich in Life. So stay tuned for season two. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Rich in Life with Rich Arani. If you like what you've heard, click subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes or visit us at richinlife.com. That's R-I-T-C-H in life.com.